we don't really push the envelope. More like open it. This is Litopia, After Dark. The Net's first and foremost literary salon. A feast of ideas for your hungry mind. So pull up a chair and let's talk. Ladies and gentlemen, get your jabs. Take your anti-malarial tablets. Spray yourself with the strongest insect repellent you can find and put on a shirt you won't be washing for three straight weeks. Not your usual Friday night, is it? Tonight we're going to Africa here on Latopia After Dark. We're going to get sweaty. We're going to get downright nasty. And make no mistake, where we're going, there's no Wi-Fi. I'm Ian Wynn, your host... The techno-pagan octopus messiah joined, as always, by super agent, producer, and vegan fish specialist aquarist, Mr. Peter Cox. And bringing up the rear guard with uh, the Oxford and the English Medical Dictionary, Dr. Alison Gardner. Like Latopia, then click the like button to share us with your friends on Facebook. It's what friends are for. It's our guest tonight, Mr. Tim Butcher. He's a writer, adventurer, and war correspondent who has actively sought out possibly the worst that Africa has to offer. War, famine, disease, extreme poverty, slums, shanties, extreme violence, child soldiers, drunken child soldiers, and possibly the seediest expat bars known to humankind. Uh, for his book, Blood River, A Journey to Africa's Broken Heart, he retraced almost the entire route of Henry Morton Stanley's 19th century Trans-Africa expedition up the Congo uh, in what is today the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, this, is, this, this is not uh, Kansas anymore. Uh, the effort was followed up by Chasing the Devil, The Search for Africa's Fighting Spirit, where he followed in the 78-year-old footsteps of novelist and MI6 agent Graham Greene. I'm, I'm told that's pronounced Graham not Graham, like the cracker, uh, through Sierra Leone and Liberia. More recently, he's covered the Oscar P uh, Pistorius trial from South Africa, and he joins us here tonight from Cape Town. Good evening and welcome, Mr. Tim Butcher. Hi, thank you for that. You did say that the worst that Africa can throw, but also, uh, you know, it's a fair introduction. But also, it is also, you know, some of the journeys I do, they are to some off-piste areas, but it's also the best that Africa can show, because you're showing people who survive in extremists in a place, you know, you were, you were mocking the fact that, you know, imagine a world where you couldn't get the internet, imagine a world where you couldn't get wireless. Well, let me take you to a world where you don't get shoelaces, where you don't get running water, where you don't get anything. And yet, I found some incredible people there, so without trying to sound too sort of blasé about it it was it's tough yeah going down the congo but a whole bunch of people live there millions of people do and uh, okay is your first of all is is your upper lip made of titanium here sir i understand you have the uh you, you have the constitution of, of an adventurer and for that I, I i salute you i have a deep found respect for um what is really a dying breed journalists who go out into the into the great unknown and bring back stories that people uh, aren't otherwise covering or feel are too dangerous. But one of your uh, one of your colleagues, I don't know how you feel about him, uh, Mr. Paul Threw, in uh, the last train to Zona Verde, he tries to go overland from Cape Town to Timbuktu, but ends up abandoning his plans in Angola. And with all the slums, the bad food, the warlords, the monstrous tyrants, and the roadblocks, he he says you need all the skill and temperament of a proctologist. <laughs> <laughs> to really crawl through the fundament of of the slums, and 
you know, so you, you when you when you're in that kind of grinding poverty, how do you how do you summon the wherewithal and the climate? You're sweaty. How do you how do you bring up the courage and and the stamina to take these journeys? Well, let's just remember with Paul Theroux and that he did give up, and I think mean, the emphasis there is he did he did kind of give up because he's a man in his seventies now. He just didn't have the um the energy. You need energy to if you are going to crawl through that dark space, that dark passage, that dark tube and get down and dirty, you've got to have a little bit of gas and he, he doesn't have it anymore and it's very evident in that book and he just kind of stops and for me I'm at the other end of the, slightly at the other end of the age spectrum and slightly energy, end of the, the other end of the energy levels because my view is that if 50 million people are living in the Congo then I want to hear their stories. Now the Congo is a place where 1500 people died today because of war yes. and they died yesterday Absolutely. because of war and they will die tomorrow. There's not a single day in post-Taliban infested Afghanistan when 1,500 people have died. And yet, think of all the news anchors, think of all the satellite dishes, think of all the attention, the op-eds in newspapers and all of that. Similarly with Iraq. There has to be... And I, it's on a scale. It's beyond our ken, the Congo. It's beyond... Our, and that's what makes it... And I want to get... I don't mind getting a bit down and dirty if you're touching on a story of such epic scale and that's what it's all about what's crazy in my opinion what's happening in the democratic republic of congo is like the great unsung tragedy of humankind in the last what 20 years or something like that i mean it really I the, totally his agree. the history of the congo is absolutely extraordinary according to the international rescue committee survey uh since 1998 five million four hundred thousand people have died in the drc and that's the world's deadliest country since world war ii now most of that and the taxi meter is still running the yeah, meter is it goes still on running. every day like you said you're not saying it's a thousand people a day 1500 people a day just dropping dead now if one u.s or british serviceman dies in afghanistan that's front page news if twenty five thousand people are murdered in the united states from you know from from gun ownership and from handguns that goes under the that gets brushed under the carpet, and now we're talking about five million four hundred thousand people dying in one country at the bottom of Africa, and it it just doesn't even get a blip. Let's let's go back to you, Tim. Uh, it's you you strike me very much as one of the last of the dinosaurs in the sense that the you know our our man and our man in Cape Town, our man in Cairo, our man in Serbia. It, you're essentially with the papers dying off. There's not money for to to pe keep people posted in these you know in these far flung places, and uh, I guess you're kind of the 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 Archaeopteryx, the the most sort of evolved dinosaur of that dying breed. Uh, how did you get your start at at the age of 23 as a journalist? Well, I hope I, I, to be honest, I hope one day that someone does come and say, "Oh, you are an interesting dinosaur," because at the moment I'm regarded as, a, as just an old git, an old fart. Um, my lucky break, like everything, in the Archaeopteryx was fascinating. <laughs> no, but still, you're still you're calling me a dinosaur. I mean, uh, the dinosaur, the veteran. I've been around for twenty years. When I did my first foreign story, I I filed on a thing called a telex device. You know, you're, you're, your your listeners wire. won't even know what a telex is. You know, it was a telex. You sat on no, that's Hunter S. Thompson's mojo exactly, wire. Exactly, and you used to write as Hunter S. Thompson did. In, you, know, you had to change your language, so in order to reduce the number of words that you were sending, because you cost every word cost a thing. So you would write, you would speak in a sort of unhappy C U M N bye bye, you know, and you had some strange coding. I found the story from from so like the kids text today. We've gone yeah, back in a way, in a way, and um, 
it, I'm such an old fart. I did that back in the back in the day in the early '90s, at the end of the first Gulf War, when uh, a million Kurds got up and left because Saddam was crapping on them in the north of Iraq. Saddam Hussein. That was my first foreign story, and it, so my career is only twenty odd years. But in that time, I feel more and more like that D word, what you just said, the dinosaur, because I like to go and find stuff out, cogitate, and tell you why it's important. That's what a newspaper. That's what I think a newspaper person should do. That's my background. My background is as a news reporter, not a not a broadcaster. I've got the classic face for radio. I've always been told. So stick to newspapers. That's what it. And my value was I went and found stuff out and told you about it. Today, of course. You don't have time to cogitate because the internet. You never say no. It's always open. It's always there. It's demanding. So you don't get a chance to find anything out. So when I wanted to do this Congo trip, right? The Congo. This story, as you rightly say, sitting in Africa, astride the equator, fifteen hundred people dying a day. The greatest human drama on the planet. For you sure. Occasionally touch on elements on it. And, you know, occasionally you get senses of it. That Joseph Coney story a year ago. That caught you know caught the got the sort of internet uh, user the internet generation's attention because suddenly there was video of this guy this evil guy running a bunch of terrorists or mad child soldiers called the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda. Well, how come he survived? Because the Congo is so lawless, he can nip across the border and hide there for years, which is what he did. So that all of these kind of little stories would would kind of leak out occasionally. Let's get into the nitty gritty of of going to the DRC. Uh, I'm really into my. I'm really into nature photography. I'm into my wildlife. A degree in biology. I just and when I get out of London, I just want to get into the bush. I want to get in the rainforest. I want to see some critters. I want to escape from mankind. Now, currently in Rwanda and Uganda, it costs five hundred dollars per person per day to sit with the mountain gorillas, and you only get an hour. Yep. Now I've 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 got reliable people who I know who are working uh, as botanists in the in the DRC and they have said to me come on down you'll love it we'll we'll hook you up how do you get a how do you get a fixer in 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 Kinshasa I've heard the first thing you have to do upon arrival in Kinshasa is buy your luggage off the plane true or not it is true. It's in Gili Airport. It's the great shakedown airport of Africa. You turn up, and if you see you're lucky, you're very, your luggage, you're very lucky. And if you can see you're lucky, uh, your if your luck holds, you can then, as it were, buy it back from the auctioneer if it goes if they've got a carousel. They don't have a carousel. It works, of course. I have my passport stolen there once. Gun to the head. You're a spy. You're a this. You're that. And the other. It's a it's a shakedown airport. So the first rule is don't go to Kinshasa. Big elementary mistake. Don't go to the capital city. City's bad. Bush, good. Why? Because Bush is somewhere where you can hide. And in this particular trip, I'm, I made a point of avoiding Kinshasa because I've been there before and I knew the hassle. And I know that where's your bit of paper for this? And you've got a Camry. Where's your bit of paper for the other? So I went to Lubumbashi, okay. which is the capital of Katanga. Flying on what? There was a commercial airline. It's called Huabora. You can't fly it into Europe because guess what? The yeah, Europeans weren't allowed Huabora planes to land in Europe because they're held together with a little bit of sticky back plastic and prayer. But you ask the question, who, who, what, how do you get in a fixer? We just take up. You take a long time over it, Ian. It took me three years to prepare this trip. I wanted to go from one side of the Congo to the other. Okay, so what? It's a country. Christ, by the lonely planet, you'd be able to travel. It's not a big deal. But it's a big physical space to get from one side of the Congo to the other is to go from where you are now, London, to Moscow. That's a fair piece of real estate. The problem is that unlike the distance between London and Moscow, there's not a single working road in the Congo. That's the problem. Not a single physical road. No infrastructure. No railways. 
states, no, no nothing, no network of, of, of anything. There's no national body. There's not even a national police force. There's not a, a border police. There's nothing. The only thing that's national in that country is the brewery where you can buy beer. This I've heard. It's quite good. It's quite good, though, is it not? It's not like Indian beer that's got the glycerin. It's actually quite drinkable. No, it's fine. It's good. There's a good sort of Belgian connection there, the Belgian colonial. That's right. Is it, so you, you can get good if Trappist you, beer in, in the DRC, but you cannot, get a, uh, you cannot get a mobile signal. You cannot get a road. Not quite Trappist, but you've got to look out for a few Trappist fingernails that have been left in the bottle because, of course, they recycle the bottles because ah, that's, a valuable, that's a valuable asset. Did you ever get one with a cigarette butt? I certainly got you know, the broken bits of glass, the stencil on the outside, which is worn away, and I, I pictured myself drinking, slugging a beer at one point in the bush, thinking that this is the same bottle that some mad mercenary has drunk has drunk out of in the 1960s, and that some Graham Greene uh, might have drunk out in the 1950s when he was passing through, and so on and so on. Because the key for this, the key for the the driver for my interest in these stories, isn't so much. Well, it's, in part, it's the it's the physical drama of this amazing place, but it's the history where it comes from, where does it sit. Now, you, you said quite rightly in the intro we discussed, we've touched on this amazing place that 1,500 people die and no one gives a monkeys about it. The reason they don't is that it has been going on for so long. The Congo has been associated with darkness since Joseph Conrad wrote his book, 1899, The Heart of Darkness. And even before that, with King Leopold and, and that whole uh, colonial well, exactly, expedition, you know, the only thing worse than being ruled by the British Empire is being ruled by the, the Belgian, Belgian Empire. Empire. Can you imagine the Belgians? They were only 30 years old as a nation. They had never run anything. They couldn't even run a brewery at that point. They hadn't even designed white beer at this point. And they, uh, they, <laughs> took, on this, they took on, this, they took on this, this in vast swathe of territory. But what I found in intriguing is that 100 years ago, the Ian Wynn of 100 years ago wouldn't have had a radio station, but he would have been talking about the Congo because the Congo was the big foreign policy story of 1900, 1905, 1910. It was the dominant one. Mark Twain, the great American satirist, there he is. What does he do? He writes a soliloquy mocking this evil Belgian king because the evil Belgian king is up to no good in the Congo. You get these incredible writers and obscure British diplomats who go to the Congo because the first genocide of the modern era is taking place in 1900, 1905, 1910. Why? Because the Belgians are plundering the place. They are raping the place and they don't give a damn about the humanity. They are unleashing their own mad militia with guns. They're killing people. They're arming locals, one thing to another. And we're talking millions dying a hundred years ago. What were they plundering? What were they taking? Then it was, then it was all very, very simple. They'd got through slavery, they'd got through ivory, that had gone. They were going for red rubber. Rubber. Boring rubber. The Model A Ford, a Model T Ford needed rubber tires, and they were made in Akron, Ohio. You needed rubber. Natural rubber grows better in the Congo than anywhere else. They just invented the pneumatic tire. So the Model T Ford they, is getting cranked out of the factories. They need rubber for the tires. They go to Belgium and say, hey, squeeze some of that rubber out of the Congo, and that's where it's coming from. Indeed. In, in 1900, 1910, that sort mm. of period. Excellent. And actually, it was the big one. It's the big one. It's the big forum. It was the, you, know, you couldn't go to London without you know, another guy standing outside you know, a train station handing you a leaflet saying, come and hear about the evils of the Belgians in the Congo. Come and support the Congo Reform Association. You couldn't go to Capitol Hill in Washington without, again, the debate going on about the Congo. And oddly enough, in 1908, on November the 15th, I only know that day because oddly enough it's my birthday, this strange sort of weird connection with the Congo, the Belgian king was forced to give up his hold over that land. He held it as a private... Real, in a private estate, it was his. It was his shooting estate. It was his 
far, it was this African bush area, a million square miles. It's the largest piece of real estate ever taken by a single individual. The Belgian king, Leopold II, picture him in your mind's eye, do a European face, a beard shit like a spade, humorless man, humorless bastard, never once stepped for one second himself in Africa. But he himself had the greatest influence and nicked more land than anyone has ever nicked in Africa. This is something that's actually kind of replaying itself right now. Uh, recently, the Chinese gave, what, nine billion, the equivalent of nine billion, I forget if it's dollars or pounds, to, uh, dollars. to, the, dollars, to the DRC to... They said, well, we'll build roads, uh, we'll, we'll put hospitals and schools, but all those minerals that we need for our cell phones and this, this kind of thing, and, and, and the diamonds, we are going to plunder the Congo rainforest. And that it's is one exactly of, the same. That it's, is one of the exactly few the green masses that you can see from space left on planet Earth today is in Brazil and in, in the Congo, and the Chinese have just bought it, basically, and they're going to go in with bulldozers and pull it out, be, and we won't even notice because we're not noticing, you know, 1,500 people a day dying. We're certainly not going to notice, you know, 1,500 trees going down or 1,500 new mines opening up every week. So wh this is a whole new land grab. What will the people get out of this? I hear this deal is going to be fairer to the people of the Congo. They'll get absolute zero. I mean, let's be brutally honest. Who, the only people who make anything out of this are the elite who run the Congo today in exactly the same way as before. There is a leader, and there's this guy, Joseph Kabila, the president. He has been elected free and fair. We had to have an election. The world was so desperate to right the wrong. The international community was so desperate to sort this place called the Congo out. They've got to have an election. Got to have an election. So they wrote a check, 800 million American dollars just to hold an election. Just to have, just to get the ballot papers out there, because I'm telling you about a country which is so big as from London to Moscow, one side to the other, without a single meaningful road on it. You have to fly things in, you have to chopper them in, you have to the UN, you have to deploy foreign soldiers, because there's nothing there. The local national institutions don't work. They had an election, the president wins, and what does he do? He changes he the... He yeah. pockets everything. Well, let's be fair. He also changed. He also changed the name from Zaire to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Well, that was his dad. That was his dad. That was his, his dad, dad who did, did that. that? Oh, dad. bloody hell! Sorry, I, keep, I get I get my Kabilas mixed up. There's a lot. This is a, you, you mentioned that all these countries are they're they're so complex, and even yourself, you admit to being complicit as part of the media in trying to paint people as either soldiers or rebels or uh, uh, Maoists or capitalists or this just to just to. Pigeonhole people, compartmentalize. So how do you how do you go about disentangling all the different factions that make for these armed militias roving the countryside? Well, for me, I go back to Ground Zero, which is I go to a place and I go on a journey. And the journey, I find journeys have a purity about them. For a start, people can people who read stories can understand what a journey is, whether it's a journey from home or even that it is a teenager. We all know what a journey is. But if you go on a journey through the Congo, you have to you know what are the practicalities of it? You talked about you know, um, health issues, we've got a war, the war is on. How do, you, how do you keep yourself well? I mean, how do you... You, you have know, a medical kit that I imagine is the size of a rugby ball. <laughs> well, a very small tennis ball, to be brutally honest. Really? I, 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 and it was a one, at one point, we had, yeah, I just took my doxycycline, which is uh, a sort of broad But that's not so good for being in the sun. If you're in the Congo, you're out of the sun because you're under the trees. You're okay. in the equatorial okay. forest most of the time. So you're, that's kind of good. Um, and the water was the issue. That was the absolute killer. And there are couple of moments when I, 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 you know, I, I try not to sort of exaggerate this, but I was in a war zone where 
we got to the end of, I was, I was traveling my small motorbike, tiny little motorbikes, 100cc things, tiny that you could pick up and physically lift over obstacles. And we bloody needed to, obstacles being fallen trees, collapsed bridges, rivers that have run amok and uh, storms have washed things away, culverts. The whole, there is no road system. So you're kind of picking away along little footpaths. So you need tiny little motorbikes. And we got to the end of this day and this, the guides I was with and they were fantastic. And I tried to you know, hopefully pay full praise to them in my in, in the book I wrote about this trip. And they get to a village and the the chief, the village chief says, We can't light a fire. I'm very sorry. We can't light a fire. I said, What do you mean you can't light a fire? I said, Well if you light a fire, you tell you're telling the bad guys you're here. You know, and he's talking this a strange whisper. And we took and we're not in a confined space here. We're not in a tiny piece of real estate. We're in a vast, vast equatorial rainforest. I had to sort of compute what he was saying. He said, if you light a fire, you're just making yourself a target. So that night, there was no heating of water and there was no cleaning of water. So the following day, I was absolutely you know, so I screwed because I, I, I miscalculated. I was rationing my water and sort of licking, you know, having one lick every, every hour. And by the end of the day, I was, I was kind of delirious when we finally got to some sort of sanctuary. And I tried not to sort of, in my mind's eye, not to think, have I made that up? Am I retrofitting this? But no, I know no one has gone through this particular era that I went well, through. Well, this is what this is what struck me uh, with the book, and I'm going to hold it up for our YouTube, uh, just for our YouTube younger crowd. You may not notice this, but this is called a book. It's made of trees. <laughs> it has these things called pages on which are printed words. It's written by dinosaurs. It's, it's, it's written by dinosaurs. This particular yeah. one was like was written by an Archaeopteryx. Um, in Blood River, one of the things that, that really struck me in the book, and one of the reasons I, I, I really wanted to have you on the show, w was the concept of everyone you, you meet, the end of whatever story of how they came to be in this particular place was, and then we fled into the bush. And you talk about you can't, you can't light a fire because you make yourself... How does, that, how does that compute? I mean, everyone you meet, and then we fled into the bush. My challenge was to find someone who would guide me through an area full of problems, full of these nasty guys. And for three years, I was told, no, c'est pas possible. It's impossible. It's just wars going on. I was talking to warlords. I was talking to UN people, diplomats, occasional sort of missionaries. And they said, it just, it's all so disconnected. We fly. If anyone moves in the Congo, you fly. You can't go over land. And I finally found a pygmy community leader who stands about four foot nothing, a man called Georges Umbuyo. And he didn't say no. He just said maybe. He didn't say yes. He just said perhaps, peut-être. And we set off on small motorbikes and we went. And his strategy was I will take you through lines and through communities that I know and they know me. And I will explain that you are a traveler. You are legitimate. You are you know, you're not a plunderer, and we'll try a lot. And I, that was good enough for me to go. And, um, and, and, and we set off. Now, you asked the question, why did they accept me? What threat was I? I wasn't a threat. I didn't come with a gun. I didn't come with anything you know, visible. Okay, wait a second. Nothing visible. Time out. Time out here, Tim, with the nothing visible. I, I'm actually, I count myself very lucky. I've been to a couple communities where I am the only white person, not just there, but that people have ever seen. One was in sort of the hill country in Thailand, of all places, the other in Madagascar, where their kids, who were like four years old, never seen white people, and they were just absolutely swarming. To be, to be the first white person in a long time to go into the bush, you're, you stick out. There's, you, know, you are the freak show. And I think people, they forget what, what it's like for, you know, for someone from a refugee, say, from, from Afghanistan or whatever, to be relocated to, to Norway and to suddenly be surrounded by all these Norwegians. It, that cultural disconnect, just by you being there, you don't belong. Th that must be really alienating. 
Yes, yes, and no. Because I tell you, tell you, what's what's strange about the Congo and all of those experiences you've just described in Thailand or Madagascar or or elsewhere, you get a sort of curiosity. Oh, 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 you are this white guy or this foreigner. You look different in some way. But you know, tell us about yourself. There's a smile. There's an energy. The really shocking thing for me in the Congo is that I was looking at children whose eyes were flat, neutral. What do you mean flat? Everyone smiles when you, you, some stranger walks into town. They were shit scared that I was some. I was one of these profiteers or a plunderer. At one point, this little child comes to me. We stop. We're in the middle of nowhere. The motorbike breaks down. And believe you me, you've never heard silence. Like the silence of your motorbike breaking down in the Congolese bush. And you've got <laughs> shit. Are we going to move on? So we stop. Flat tire, whatever, carburetor. This guy emerges, as is so often in Africa. There's never true. <laughs> there's always someone emerges from someone. Look at He looks at me. These dead eyes, these flat eyes. Do you want to see the bones, he says in French. The bones? What are you talking about, the bones? Sure, I want to see the bones. Let's go. He leads me through the bush, and he sort of rather deftly slips through this thick, thorny area. And there I am, big me, snagging my clothes, snagging my skin. There we come to bones, human bones, femurs, skulls, ribs, stuff that you know, I, I don't know the name of. And they're lying there. So I get my notebook out and I ask the kid, whose are these? Whose are these? And he says, well, I don't really know. I, I can't remember. I mean, we had the inter came through, then there was the Mai Mai, then the army, the, that was last year. And I said, well, but, but what was the comp? You know, tell me the details. And he said, look, it happens so often, we don't even know. We don't bury them. And that was really, really um, an epic moment for me. That bo- the bones lie so thick on the ground in the Congo that mm. no one, there's no institution to deal with that. Amazing. It's not even buried, and people don't remember the stories. Now we remember if there's, a, I don't know, a, 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 I don't know, a drone missile, a Hellfire missile goes wrong in the Swart Valley. Quite rightly, we're all over it. There'll be a satellite dish there if the journalist is brave enough to get there. The be- Lockerbie bombing is still part of the public debate. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we want to know. There's an institution for doing that. But the institutional memory in the Congo is blank. It's so screwed. It's so problematic that those, there are, those details aren't written down. And you say, what was it like being a strange white guy? I was overwhelmed by much more fundamental things. Which I, was, I went to a couple of communities and we stop with our motorbikes. The kids were much more interested in the motorbikes I was, we were traveling on than they were in me, the funny white guy. Why? Because in a strange reversal of everything we know, their grandfathers had told them about cars and buses and engines and motorbikes and being able to go places and being able to go to school, maybe go to a mission station, maybe even travel on a train and go to a city and do all this. But their community had so regressed and so folded in on itself that these grandchildren were looking at grandpa to hear stories about high technology. And that's a kind of total reverse of our world where, in my case, I'm a father and my child is showing me how to use WhatsApp or whatever technology is is around. It's a total reversal, really spooky. And so they're much more interested in the motorbike I'm on or what I represent than my white skin. I mean, I'm just, you know, there's... they've heard about white guys because the remarkable thing about the Congo is, isn't so much how, 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 how uh, part of the drama of, of its terrible reality today is that 50 years ago, 
The Congo was off the graph developed. It was the place you wanted to go. In Africa, if you got ill, you went to the tropical medicine center because the Belgians, mm. late colonial right. uh, Belgian medicine was as good as it got. Mm. If you had any money in your pocket, you didn't come to Johannesburg and fritter no. around with, on the gold, on the gold, on the Vidvatis Rand, where the deepest gold seams were, no, surrounding Kimberley, where the diamonds are, you went to the copper belt in the Congo. And this is where Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn famously shot the African queen, and those were the big Hollywood yeah, stars of their day and they went and hung out in that boat you encountered and it's still rusting on some riverbank could you, yes? could you imagine in the 1950s hollywood could send a film crew to the congo and shoot a film and they would no sooner do that today than fly to the moon that's yeah. the reality yeah. so touching on this place and this you know it's like looking at a, at, at, at a clock and the hands on the face are going backwards and you look at the clock and it looks normal and then you notice something really odd about it shit it's going backwards that's what's so striking and yes you're right they did shoot a film but you'll have to again tell your your listeners exactly what we're talking about a film in black and white which was a medium of of, of, of cinema some years ago it was it was with a man called bogart you'll never have heard of and his gorgeous girlfriend was shot was on the film smoked Lauren a cigarette McCall. like this yes. indeed yes indeed and, you know and Catherine hepburn she's strange actually her father would you be was a urologist so she's obsessed with pee with wee and poo <laughs> Or Catherine Hepburn. So she went to the Congo. She wrote a diary about it. All she talks about is her stool, the firmness of really? her stool. Um, very strange, old Catherine Hepburn. That sounds like, like my notes when I, whenever I go to Africa, for sure. It must have been really thrilling because they actually got very sick, didn't they? Indeed, well, they did. So her stool diary is probably quite <laughs> From a medical perspective. <laughs> From a medical perspective. It's the continent where you don't fart with confidence, Africa. You've got to be very careful. <laughs> That's the first so, thing um, you learn. So Never trust a fart. <laughs> But you know, but remember, you know, you're, you've been to Madagascar, you've been to the bush. The, let me get, just run this past you. The, the oldest natural park, the oldest game park in Africa. Guess where it is? In the bloody Congo. It's that place, the Prince Albert Park, where the it's on the backside of the same mountains that you talked about, where you can go and see the gorillas in Uganda or Rwanda. It's on the western flank on the Congolese. Okay, to, to be fair, where... the gorillas in the Congo are the western lowland variety, so they're slightly smaller. But I'll give I'll give that up for oh, the. No, 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 no. Let me correct you. Let me correct you. They've got both. They've got all. They cover all. They've got the mountain gorillas now? in the ruins. Or oh shit, yeah, absolutely. Old Diane Fossey. What? Where did she do her all her research before she? goes ah, to the, the gorillas in the, the mist moon. and gets whacked yeah. in Rwanda, she goes to the Virunga range in the DRC. So no, plenty silverback, plenty big deep chests and also the lowland gorilla. But they've also got these wonderful animals called the okapi, which is like an animal designed by committee. Where it's got a stripy neck, a stripy neck, which is long enough to be a giraffe, but stripy enough to be a zebra. Yes, that was that's a recent discovery as well. In the last, what, 20, 30 years, they have, the only reason I know is they have one here at the at the London Zoo. Yeah, well, they, they're two amazing amounts. Americans, Therese and John Hart, have been chasing them for a long time. And the Congo, as I said, city's bad, bush good. And the Congo is big. I mean, really, really big. So there are places where the chaos has, 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 has kind of passed it by. And the Okapi is kind of hanging in there. But, you know. And then the Interhamway came and it fled into the bush. And it had everyone's story finished with that. Oh, shit, yeah, the Rwandans came, the Ugandans, the Interhamway, the Mai Mai, or even worse still, the really bad thing, if you're Congolese, is when the Congolese army turn up because the army pay themselves because of course the government pockets the money and they, they don't they don't disperse it to their soldiers so they pay themselves you re really shit scared if the um, the army turn up and that's when you disappear just just give me give can I just plant one little sort of vignette in your mind's eye that you know we think that and every african villager knows exactly the same thing that you and i do which is that if you want to grow 
if you want to develop, you've got to have a surplus. You develop, you grow things, whether it's fish in a fish pond or maize or goats, and you have more than you need, and you sell and have a surplus, and that gives you something, and that gives you a trade, and that's that's where growth comes from. It's the classic economic model. Yeah, over here we do it in Tesco, yeah, or down the road from you in the city of London, you do it with your arbitrage derivatives in a rather complex. It's all the classic old, you know, economic model. In the Congo, if you have a goat or a field of maize, the bad guys come and kill you and rape your wife and murder your children. It makes you a target. So there's a terrible disincentive to have that economic success. So again, it goes back to this regression, and it explains why a vast country, so wealthy, you haven't, you've, you've alluded to the, to, to the diamonds and the gold and the wealth, it is off the graph wealthy in terms of resources. Yeah. How can it be so economically backward? Come closer to new worlds of storytelling and new stars in the making. Come closer to Radio Latopia. If we may just sh uh, shift focus to, sure. your, to your next book, uh, Chasing the Devil. So you hung your hat on Graham Greene's... Uh, his his original travels through again you're going to some crazy places Sierra Leone and Liberia. Um, what, where on earth did you get the idea to do that? Well, I was sent to as a reporter to follow the war in Sierra Leone in 2000, and I have no shame in saying this. I was absolutely off the graph, terrified. I was suddenly I'd hello. Been, I'd, I thought I could understand. I thought I could understand war. I'd been to the I'd done Bosnia, I'd done Kosovo, I'd done other conflicts. I've been to the Middle East. You know, the, the, the actual truth. You asked why did I why, why did I do this book on Sierra Leone and Liberia? It's because I went to this place and. And two old friends who did that Bosnia thing, just like me, who was much braver than I was. Amazing American guy called Kurt Shork, stunning reporter with, with Reuters. Did he have a chin dimple? No, he, he's, he's, he was a classic. He was, he was your guy. He was the guy. He's not going to be on the TV screen. He's not going to. He hated the camera. He was just a fantastic off the graph, good reporter and a, and, and a decent sort of human being. He got killed in Sierra Leone. You know, he can do Kosovo. He could do Bosnia. And he went to Sierra Leone, he went down the wrong road. And we were drinking together the night before. He never drank booze. He was a Coca-Cola guy, um, quite a sober individual. And he went with a, a, a Catalan friend of mine as well, who I knew from Bosnia, a much more passionate man, amazing uh, cameraman. Anyway, they go down the road, and they don't come back. They're dead. They're killed. They're killed in, a, in an ambush. I ran away from that place, shit scared. Two colleagues killed, totally overwhelmed. This was during the war that ended in, what, 2000. 2000, 1999. 2000, in, Sierra Leone, in Sierra Leone, the war ended in 2002, 2000. and in, in Liberia in 2003. But, you know, these are wars that don't... These are relative terms. Like They're still ongoing. There's roving bands of well, armed people but, but it's also, robbing but it's also, and plundering. But it's also kind of... It's not kind of it's not quite as sort of neatly, neatly it's not like the Treaty of Versailles or a signature in a signature on you know on the USS Missouri to finish the Japan thing. No, they just ran out of bullets. Yeah, it kind of it kind of sweeps away, kind of like a snowdrift. Kind of wander, you, know, you don't really know you don't really know when the war is on. Is, it, is winter finished now because there's no snowdrift? So anyway, the point is this: I went back after there was a degree of peace because I was seeking my own. Closure. I mean, I've been shit scared by this place, defeated, baffled. Is it really? Is Sierra Leone just blood diamonds and kids with, you know, heroin in their veins and Kalashnikovs dragging Kalashnikovs by the barrel because their the belt, the, the length of the gun is longer than their body? Is that what it really is? Is it that chaotic? Can it be that bad? Is, is Liberia just? Is it just this? Bit? So I went back, and you asked. You said Graham Green. Graham Green. If you're, you know, your uh, your your listeners are. Uh, 
people who know about books, Graham Greene stands astride the 20th century from any English point of view because he was this Renaissance author who could write hardcore fiction, he could write entertainments, he could write thrillers, he could write film. He wrote The Third Man, one of the greatest films ever, open brackets, in black and white, close brackets, a little bit old-fashioned for, for, your, for your But it is, you know, The Third Man. And just that word, just those words alone, The Third Man, Christ, you can't hear a spy story without well he he was a spy as well he was he was a spy not just rumored to be he worked for mi6 i know but doesn't that sound great until he himself would hold his hand up and say i was a shit spy i locked my (laughs) code book in my safe and uh, when he needed to when he needed to get his code book he had to ring someone up with a with a blowtorch to come and cut the torch cut to cut the safe open he was in West Africa at the point at that time, and the code book, would you believe, had a, a funny abbreviation for the word eunuch. Eunuch. <laughs> and he was like, How the hell can I get the word eunuch into some MI6, you know, coded message? Well, anyway, it took him a few months. Because this is the sort of guy he was, Graham Greene. He was red-blooded. He was amusing. He, he liked to take the piss. And he, um, he thought, right, finally, he gets an invitation to some meeting, and he writes back, he says, with reference to your, and he's writing in code in MI6 language, you know, a bit like that telex speak, the, uh, the mojo ride you were talking about earlier. He's writing to the grown ups, you know, to, to SAI, SIS, Secret Intelligence Service, with reference to your meeting uh, requested for this date and this place. Sadly, as the eunuch said to the emperor, I cannot, repeat, cannot come. So this is, uh, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is the kind of spy he was. Yes, he, it sounds great he was a spy, but he was a pistol spy, and he was a bit of an amateur, and, and I loved him for it because he comes alive. He doesn't take him too seriously. doesn't take himself too seriously. I was going to ask you about this journey, actually. I think we're both getting the same point, but Graham Greene, in, in my mind, I mean, obviously multi-talented guy, but also very famous depressive, probably many yeah. depressive, actually. He was bipolar. Yeah, and it yep. was on this particular journey, wasn't it, that in, I think in his own words, from memory, he, he discovered he had a very strong will to live. And I just wondered... Indeed, by coming close to death, John. Well, yeah, is, can you explain that? And is there anything that you've actually found on, on your journey, retracing his steps? Well, Graham Greene, a kid, six children in his family, they're all incredible overachievers. One's going off to be a spy here in Afghanistan. He's climbing up Everest. That's the brother Raymond. Uh, another one, Hugh, is in Berlin when Hitler comes to power as a journalist. Graham Greene, the novelist, scrabbling around, failed. His books aren't selling very well. Yes, there's a bit of bipolar there, but his, all his brothers are doing amazing things. He's got to do something a bit strange. And he decides, I'm going to go and challenge myself. I'm going to come alive, he thinks, in this sort of his, in, in his manic way. Mm. I come alive most when I'm closest to death. This is a guy who put a gun to his head with a chamber, a revolver, with a bullet in, and spins it when he's a teenager. Whether or not you believe that story is up to you. Some cynics have said Graham Greene made that story up retrospectively. Some have said, shit, he was at Balliol College like Boris Johnson. He couldn't have hit anyway. He would have missed the target, whatever. (laughs) the 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 point was that he, this was the type of person he was. He was prone to highs and vicious lows. And when those lows came, when the black dog came, he was self-mutilating, knives, bit of poison, tried to drown himself once. So this this fits into, there's a young man now, 1935. Just out of curiosity, was he a heavy drinker? Yeah, big whiskey man, loved his whiskey. And uh, uh, that was his his vice, actually. He's collected whiskey bottles, his miniature whiskey bottles later in life. Oddly enough, when I go to Liberia, on my trip, I'm going through the bush. I'm going through a journey 78 years after Graham Greene's done it. 
and I find a villager in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the Liberian bush. And I'm walking. I walk for 300, uh, about 400 miles. Well, you're retracing, for, the, for our listeners, a 350-mile trek through Sierra Leone and Liberia uh, following Green's journey without maps. So you're trying to follow in his Indeed. footsteps. He, he goes there in 1935. He takes a woman with him, his female cousin. She writes a book. So I've got her book and I've got Graham Greene's book. They are my reference points, my pole stars to try and compare what I find with what happened before to try and understand Do their narratives match up? Did you find that their mer- narratives... Yes, yeah, yes, no, but I tell you what, what was intriguing is that Barbara, the cousin's book, the cousin Babs, who traveled yeah. with him, Babs, Babs, she was a star. She was brilliant. She wrote a book. You know, it made me laugh, but again, this is a, you know, your, your readers, your, your, your listeners might not know that, might not know these characters, but she was Gerald Durrell to Graham Greene's Lawrence Durrell. Lawrence okay. Durrell was this kind of high, high end literary figure post war. Gerald, the brother, wrote this very popular stuff. Barbara Simmons, she wrote a travel book which was much more engaging than Graham's on this. And Graham's by his own account, he wasn't very proud of Journey Without Maps. It was a bit adolescent. The point was this, that he goes in this off-piste and he writes uh, a book. She does. I think hers is more reliable to go answer your question. Certainly her facts are more... Are more um, well, he's pissed half the time. More accurate. He's a little. He's, he's pissed and delirious. With, Come on, he's with, being carried. As I understand it, he's being carried in hammocks. They're both being carried, and he's just sozzled on whiskey. I mean, you, can you really expect the narrative to be clear and concise and in, in that manner? I'm, I'm guessing that you weren't completely wasted being carried you around a goddamn you litter. You mentioned Hunter S. Thompson. You know, Christ, you do rely. You know, the best writers need a little bit of creative juice, and they get their creative juices from else, from, from all sorts of places. Okay, Hunter he S. Thompson has three livers, but that's another that's another story. He borrowed, he borrowed them. Okay, so I go on this trip, and I'm thinking, this 78 years, the passage of time. There's no way, no way. I get to a village, middle of effing nowhere, a place called Duogmai. I mean, really, really basic. And this was the beauty of it to come to a village which was no different from when Green passed through, apart from a few plastic Chinese flip-flops. That was it. The houses are the same, the food is the same, the climate's the same, and the horizons of the people are the same. And that's what's so enriching for me. And this little kid says, oh, you want to talk to the old man who sits over there? He'll, he, he was around then when these... He might, he might know what you're talking about if you're talking about some European guy who traveled through here all that time ago. This is, so a, this across, is a country where the average lifespan is, what, 45? Exactly. So I'm thinking, no way we've got someone who's going to be so beyond, out, such an outlier from that bell curve. 45, they're dead. Anyway, I see here. I, he opens his eyes. I see immediately what the problem is. He's got river blindness. He's got this clouding in his eyes, a, a white meniscus. He can't see. And if you can't see, you can't work the fields. If you can't work the fields, you don't die. You just you just live because you're sitting in the shade all day and food is brought and water is brought. That's it. If you get, you know, you, you're not going to die from 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 the exertion of survival. Okay, so you meet an old dude with worms in his eyeballs. Jesus, this is so depressing. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't be depressed because I looked at him and he opens, he, opens, he opens these eyes. He opens these eyes and he still sees. He still sees because he can picture. He says, I remember this English guy. Yeah, I had a funny accent walking through here. I'm a cynical journalist. I'm as cynical as you. I'm thinking, is this for real? Is this guy making this up? So I ask a few loaded questions. He says, no, 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 no. He was traveling with an English woman. I remember that. And the bearers they carried, they brought with them. Yeah, yeah, they had Sierra Leonean accents. This is all entirely consistent with the, the reality. So I'm, I'm thinking this guy's talking the truth. And then the final clincher, the final clincher, he said, yeah, yeah, no, I remember. God, he drank a lot of whiskey with our chief. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's my man. That's him. That's the guy. the guy. I found the guy. So Graham Greene goes on this journey, but go to back to Peter's question, which is a good question which is what was he doing and what, why was I doing it? He did this journey because he wanted to 
to challenge himself. 1935, he has a very nice line in the book, and it goes like this, because it it's along the lines of this, which he says, why do I want to go to Africa? Why do I want to go to Liberia? Because centuries of cerebration, strange word, don't often mm. hear it, centuries of kind of civilization and overthinking have thrown us into such a bad space in Europe, open brackets, Nazism, close brackets, that I want to go back to where it's simpler, where it's all started and try and work out how we in Europe have screwed it all up. And that's why he wanted to go back to the virgin forest of Africa, to communities, indigenous communities, living a simplistic um, uh, life of, of, of subsistence. And there, there's a nice sort of Greenian element to that because he's saying, shit, Europe is in a bad way. And he would know. Do you know why he would know? Because his brother Hugh was the first Western journalist to get into Dachau in 1934. Mm. Dachau was already around in 1934. I find that astonishing. Mm. And Green refers to it in a book. For me, it's the first written reference in a book to a concentration lager, to a concentration wow. camp called Amazing. Dachau. 1936. So he is sensitive enough to know that Europe might be haughty and it might take itself very seriously, but he, but he knew. pricks the bubble and says, your, your haughtiness covers things like Dachau, where you take people who are wow. political opponents and you whack them. And that was so extraordinary. Knows, That's a, I've never heard that he knows this. He knows this from his brother. This is the amazing thing. Not from something he's read, not from something he's picked up from a journalist colleague. His brother, Hugh, who ends up being director general of the BBC yeah, later later part of his life. So this is Green. So this is why he's going and he wants to push himself. He wants to go somewhere where life is purer, where subsistence is, you, you strip away all this cerebration, all of this over-elaboration. And off he goes to Liberia, which, you know, let's be face, let's be honest, not many people can find on a map. Believe you me, I got back from this trip and I patted myself on the back for walking for 600 k's through the Liberian jungle. Mates of mine were saying, oh, how was Libya? You had a great time, Mr. Gaddafi. You know? <laughs> You know, this, and these are friends of mine who, who are foreign correspondents, and they didn't. They could, they, you know, people couldn't find it, and that's what the that's what makes it so intriguing for me. It was off piste for Graham Greene. That's why he went there. He wanted to challenge himself. He wanted to get to a place which was away from Europe's travails. He goes there. He takes the roughest route possible. He's a stupid traveller because he leaves his medical box back at home and he takes this whiskey. Hey, yours is the size salt. of a tennis ball, so I'm not I'm not sensing like you know the bulb burning <laughs> too bright there, pal. <laughs> Come on, I took I did take some baby wipes. I did that. What else do you need apart from a packet of baby wipes? My wife, that's fine. how she you that's how she rolls. We at least a third of her else. luggage size is baby wipes when we take these kinds of crazy well, trips. You know, I'm. I'm six foot two, and I can believe you me, I can ablute with a single baby wipe in Eastern Congo if I try hard enough. Anyway, enough of a horrible imagery. Thank you um, for that. So, so Green, Green, Green goes and does this trip, and he almost fulfills his ultimate aim. He almost dies. You know, he gets so sick, he's off yeah. the graph set. You, you were kind of, you know, yes, he was being carried in a in a litter in a in a in a in a hammock, but not because he was some great big sort of. In a regal figure, it's because he was fucked. And I mean, really, really off the graph. He loses consciousness. The, the cousin writes without in her diary, without any exaggeration or hyperbole, I prepare for a funeral. Green, Graham has converted to Catholicism and it goes through oh, my mind wow. what catechism will be what catechism will be required to, 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 to inter again quoting quoting Hunter S. Thompson when he was arrested and they asked him how serious it was. He says, If I ever come out for Jesus, you know it's really bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so when you're when you're invoking those sort of high spiritual um cards, you're th you you are deeply in the shit. So so Green is unconscious for days, for a couple of days. Um 
the cousin, this cousin who has never travelled anywhere more exciting than you know, you know, from Victoria Station to a country weekend in England, is is suddenly in the shit. How does she deal with it? And guess what? She really responds well. She's fantastic. With Barbara. a plum, she gets I believe stronger. Would, would the word be? Yeah, a plum and a plum is in both both meanings of that. Both spellings. She gets stronger whilst he gets weaker. She sorts it all out. She keeps the mission going. She keeps the expedition moving. She keeps the bearers all happy. She knows where they're going. They get fed their water. And green comes round. All this whiskey and Epsom salts finally brings him round. And what does he write at the end of it? There's a lovely exchange. I, I dig it up in some letters. 40 years after they do their trip in 1935. It's 1975. They've both lived serious lives. I mean, amazingly rich and intriguing lives. She herself had an astonishing life because she was in Berlin for six years from 1939 to 1945 dodging the Gestapo amazing 1975 she writes to Graham Greene she says um, you know, it's 40 years you know, well, you know, let's, let's get together and, and have a celebration and he writes this amazing letter back dear Barbara can it really be 40 years since that amazing journey how I would like to toast our success maybe but not with a champagne that wouldn't be right surely it would be lukewarm whiskey and fruit juice from a fruit that's been taken from the liberian jungle truly that was a journey that altered life it taught me to love life again so this is a terribly long answer to peter's question the reason i do these journeys is because i find that in the shit down in the fundament down in the misery in africa i've learned i have learned to love life again mm. I'd like to defend proctologists, actually. I don't think hey, it's No, they're much. crucial. Hey, they're crucial. Yeah. They're not saying it without – listen, I, I went and saw a proctologist yeah. not too long yeah, ago, really. and I was and really hoping it would be one of those diminutive Indian doctors. Mm. But no, he was, he, he was a Nigerian, yeah. about six foot four, with hands like bananas. But that's another story. <laughs> what I'm fascinated is how you record all this. I mean, this, I've got this wonderful vision of this old man sitting in this African village. I mean, do you record on audio, or you just write it down and take 60 million photographs? I've got the, the – I cover all the bases. So I have the old-fashioned pre-dinosaur, you know, the, pre, the old Jurassic thing. I write things down. I take shorthand notes. I take verbatim notes. I, 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 I get spellings right. I, I care. For our younger listeners, this here, what I'm holding up is a, is, a, is a portable word processor. It's filled with this stuff called ink, and it's called a pen. And this is what Tim's Indeed. referring to now, which he writes on a paper that's like the book but not the same. And, it, and, and the younger generation would say, but hold on, how do you back that up? And that is my biggest scare, my biggest nightmare yeah. is if I lose that notebook, Ooh. I'm dead. I, don't, I can't spell the name of that old guy. I don't know how old he was. I don't know if he was, if he was sitting under a house or a tree, you know, that image. So I back up every place I possibly can. And on this, um, on the Congo trip, it was strange because I was, I would occasionally come to UN bases, right? Because uh, there's a massive UN mission, the biggest UN peacekeeping mission in the world happens to be in the DRC. Obviously, it's just a, a tiny little tick on the hide of a vast rhino of a country, but you know, they were there. And I would nip in, I would go into these UN bases and beg a beg access to a computer and then just download, just write, just transpose everything from my notes onto files just in case that book was lost i took no video on that trip in the congo because i wasn't wealthy enough to have a camera uh i took a lot of stills and i backed those up as furiously as i could i'm very proud of the stills i'm, I'm a, I, I love my photographs my photographs are, they bring it alive for me in you can my check mind's out tim butcher on facebook he's got some lovely photos up there of 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 his travels uh, i have a question a specific question on sierra leone and freetown uh, this is from my own personal uh, weirdness and fascination with the um, the witch doctors, the the Sangomas of South Africa, the um, uh, the Ombias of Madagascar. This the, uh, this type of thing. You talk about 
the cotton tree at the center of Freetown in in um, in Sierra Leone. And I do. You look up in the tree. Well, they say that there are colored rags that are tied in the top of the tree, but that if you've been touched by the witch doctors, you see bats. And that's <laughs> maybe an urban legend, and I've looked at some photos, but you very clearly, in, uh, in Chasing the Devil, <laughs> Indeed. you encounter the cotton tree and you describe what? I'm afraid I'm in the category I've been touched by the Sangoma figure. I, I saw the devil, I saw the I saw bats. the vampire uh, the yeah. fruit the fruit bats the hanging down. Bats hanging we're not down talking one or two. We're talking we're talking thousands of them. Okay, I'm a little bit freaked out. I just did did anyone else have chills go down their spine? Yeah. Oh, just the thought yeah. of all those bats. Well, let me give you this story about health in in, in West Africa in Sierra Leone Liberia. This is the place where Lassa fever comes from. Lassa fever belongs to that group called hemorrhagic fevers. It's not a disease you want to get. You it's would, a filovirus. It's a very nasty one and it goes into your blood cells and it trashes them and you bleed out you just lose fluids out of your ears out of your nostrils out of your navel out of your anus out of places where the proctologist goes or doesn't go Re you just bleed kills out kills you in like a week too you dehydrate because you just lose so many fluids right Lassa fever, where on the planet is its hot zone, is the place where it's actually kind of, you know, that's where, it's, that's where it is, it's reservoir, it's on the border between Sierra Leone and Liberia. So I go walking through this area, as Graham Greene did, and uh, it's carried in, get this, it's carried by rats, domesticated rats, or rats that live in a sort of human area, and they, it's, it's carried in their urine. And these rats are very badly behaved rats because they pee all the time. They don't pee in episodes. They just serial pee. They just pee all the time. They're dribbling pee. I've got an uncle like that. Yes. <laughs> you, uh, you learn in Sierra Leone to sleep on your belly because you do not want to be lying face up when a rat goes scurrying across the roof doing this thing because he's going to be giving you lots of fever. Um, and those were the sort of health hazards that I faced. And strangely enough, the green did as well. Old um, Barbara, when, he was on, when they were traveling in 1935, she wakes up one morning three o'clock in the morning and there's a rat in her hair just licking the oil off some of the fibers in her hair Aww. you slept face down during this whole business you learn to if there's a rat pissing above you and he's got less of fever in his urine you learn to, you learn to, you learn to sleep <laughs> there are some down. points in this conversation where i'm glad you went there so, I, so so we don't have to i'm a travel writer right but i don't do aspirational travel they everyone says aspirational you know do you climb mountains and other a spot you know other people are going to climb everest after you or are you going to you know, go down the Rhine or whatever, and I say, "Well, I've been to Congo. Come follow me." And very few have. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and yeah. and that's and that's my point. Like, I ask, well, how do I get a good fixer in in Kinshasa or, or in the DRC so I can go see some Western lowland gorillas and not pay this kind of crazy uh, Rwandan Ugandan extortionate prices of five hundred dollars per person for an hour? And you say you need time. You need time to sit around and find a fixer, find someone who's going to take you in there. And if you know you get only four or the Americans two weeks holiday a year, that's not going to happen. That's not. And that's that's why travel, travel, the beauty of real travel is that you don't have you don't have a time. You know, you don't have a, a oh. an, uh, you know a limited time. You go you go where the time allows you, and you go at the pace that allows you that it is allowed. Not because. Lonely Planet says you've got, in three days you can reasonably do this in Prague or you can go to New Zealand and climb the, uh, the Abel Tasman National Park in two weeks or whatever. The limiting factor is not money. It's time. No, no. It's, it's time and also your attitude to travel. What is your attitude to travel? Because you can go to the Congo, you will have an extraordinary experience anywhere in the Congo, whether it's crossing from going into Kinshasa through that airport you described at the beginning, the Shakedown Airport, or going through Goma, where a lot of Westerners go from Rwanda, um, uh, which is at the top of Lake, uh, Lake Kivu, and they, uh, it's the most accessible place. You can go there, 
and then head 10Ks east. Just go west. Just keep going. Keep going. And then you get the roads just decay, and you see old buildings. And that's you can have an experience. Suddenly, you are off the beaten track. But let me tell you this. Let me tell you this. I, the Congo, for me, is the gift that keeps giving. I find it just an amazing place. And the other day, only the other day, I've been banging on about the Congo for years. I hear about an American guy, John Goddard. He was uh, born in, in California. Uh, he died this year, aged about 90. So he's, you know, he, he lived out the 20th century. He gave himself a wish list of crazy things he wanted to do. When he did die this year, he was described as the real Indiana Jones, right? One of the things he wanted to do, canoe the Congo. He did it in 1956. He took a photographer with a kayak. He took himself with a kayak. He took a long, sharp, dangerous, bloody knife, and he started at the end of the Congo, and he canoed down it. I found that extraordinary. The photographer died after four weeks. He drowned. Did this stop John Goddard? No, he buried him next to the river, <laughs> and they carried on. And there's no book written about him. There's no legend of John Goddard. Well, he probably didn't want to answer some awkward questions as well. That did cross my mind. You know, exactly, exactly Mr. Goddard, exactly how did this gentleman drown? Could you tell us a bit more about that? Um, I just find it extraordinary. And then that was done in 56, right? 2010, just a couple of years ago, a couple of hard-ass American kayakers, extreme sportsmen, sort of guys who dance, who dance around uh, on incredible water, whether it's in Colorado and Himalayas, uh, wherever. They made a discovery documentary of those guys going down the Congo. They, they, wanted, to go, they wanted to go down part of the Congo, which is a, called the Lukuga River, which is a river that I, I actually start my, my journey on. It's the river that drains Lake Tanganyika. It runs due west out of Lake Tanganyika and joins the upper Congo. And it's a hell of a river. And it's bumpy, right? Really bumpy. So these two Americans with GoPro cameras on their heads and the you know, Go, you know, GoPro attitudes, which is shit. I can kick the ass out of anything. I can do anything. Bring it on, man. Bring it on, man. Who do I go for? Where do I get the guide? Surf the tsunami, yo. And they, uh, they got this, they got this guide who was a South African kayaker, but one of the best kayakers in Africa who was then working up on the Nile, right? Up in Uganda. And he's going to guide them. And they go and they set off. This guy, this guy, the best kayaker in Africa, he is taken by a croc body never found taken from his kayak in 2010 yeah. so again so if i if i'm telling you if i'm trying to if you think i'm talking a lot of bullshit about no this, this i remember this story this, this is this is you know, it doesn't just happen in 1956 when a guy with a knife goes down the river it doesn't just happen in henry morton stanley's time in 1877 when all the europeans he took to the congo died all of the bearers he took from zanzibar two-thirds of them died it happened in 2010 you know, a guy got taken. You, as a kayaker, you never get taken from your. Now, kayak. okay, that and that brings us that brings us to a good uh, a good exit point here because honestly, we could go on talking Africa. I still wanted to talk to you about Johannesburg, about what's going on with Oscar Pistorius, who you've written about. But I think I'd like to just start a little beef um, from uh, the last train to Zona Verde, where Paul threw your. Um, I, I, I hesitate to call him your colleague, your uh, compatriot, your. Uh, Anyways, he's your compatriot. He's your compatriot. He's yeah, American. he is kind lives of lives over in Hawaii. He, he's actually, but he's lived here in Britain. I, I, I do the dual passport thing. Um, I'm very conflicted. Oh. Um, but this, he writes in Last Train to Zona Verde, which he he abandons because he decides he's not a proctologist, as we've discussed. Uh, he writes the fo oh, and for those of you uh, listeners at home who might be pensioners, for you grandpas and grandmas out there, this that I'm holding up is called a Kindle. It's an electronic book where the paper of the old book has been transposed into electronic form. Now, how do they do that? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, quoting here, 
The followers in the footsteps of H.M. Stanley through the Congo, of David Livingston through Angola, and of Samuel Baker through Sudan quickly discover that the trip is impossible in the Africa of today. The hinterlands are now controlled by heavily armed warlords, mercenaries, rebel armies, hostile tribes, secessionists, and religious fanatics, hardline Islamists, Boko Haram and Sardine, or crazed Christians, the Lord's Resistance Army. Tim Butcher, that's you, buddy, who in Blood River recounts trying to recreate Stanley's overland trans-Africa trip from east to west ended up flying. I could have flown, but what's the point? You don't Ooh. see anything from 30,000 feet. Ooh. So, you care to respond there? Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, Paul Theroux was talking about the helicopter trip I took at the uh, on some of the Congo River. So, he's flagging that up. He's a kind of... Um, Oddly enough, I, when I wrote Blood River, I contacted him to try and give me some support, uh, a little sort of cover quote, and he didn't. He didn't respond, and I guess it didn't. It didn't appeal to him, and you know, everyone's to their taste. But to say that I, you know, disappeared at thirty thousand feet isn't quite the right. I, I took a UN helicopter down some of them. Some that was of, a bitchy thing to write, wasn't isn't it? Because the thing is, if you look, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He's. I mean, listen. I have a lot of respect for. Well, Thoreau he's a bit chippy. He's a bit chippy. He's a bit chippy because you know he doesn't do the type of travel that I do. He does much more. He takes public transport. He takes buses. Oh, the and trains. Things. The on that's the cool. trains. Cool. Come on, man. And that's cool. And, and that's cool. And that he he does his thing. I love him as a writer, but the places that he goes and the situation he gets in are. Oh God, they're so painfully class-oriented and and uh, and pompous, and you just and he's always dropping in his his whole thing of working for the uh, of of working in the schools in yes, Africa, sir. and it's just absolutely yeah. bum squinging. But you managed to go into some seriously hectic places, and some might say, "Well, that's stunt journalism." How would you respond? Well, me, well, How would you respond to that accusation? Well, well, stunt journalism. Listen, you know, I left my newspaper to do my Congo trip. My newspaper said, "No, it's too dangerous. We're not interested." I took six months off, and I wanted to do this trip because, for me, it was the heart of Africa. It was the heart of the problems, and I set off. It wasn't stunt journalism. It was a. It was. It was to try and understand a little bit more. Going back to Peter's question from some minutes ago, I wanted to to try and make sense of the things I've been doing for 20 years as a journalist going to dangerous places. And I wanted to go to, for me, the Mount Everest of it all, which is to, is to go down the Congo. Other people have left it alone for too long. That was my challenge. I didn't write journalism about it. I didn't do the shock. I didn't do the video. Well, that's, I hopefully cogitated. But as you brought up with the crocodile... Uh, the, ki uh, the, the crocodile that ate the kayak sure. and, and the photographer who died in 1956 from the American sure. Explorer. I mean, you got lucky. Some of those yeah, scenes where you encounter child, child, child soldiers and stuff, you were on a real razor's edge there. They might have just been well-organized, well-planned, and very well, the, sensible. Well, well Ali, that's kind, that's, that's kind of you, but I don't want to, again, sort of over, overcook this, but a British guy set off down the Niger River a couple of years ago, just a little bit before, after me, actually. He wanted to recreate Mungo Park's journey. The Niger River, it goes across through, sweeps across the Sahel, West African comes out in Nigeria, right? His body's never been found. You know, he was a young guy in his 20s from Edinburgh University, and his parents still go out to West Africa leafleting to try and find whoever it was that did it. They just want closure. I was incredibly lucky. I took an ex you know, on both of these trips. My luck depended on amazing people who helped me. I was fortunate. On this case, this young guy, he didn't 
find the right people, and they bumped him off. Well, we're very glad. We're very glad, Tim, that you uh, you survived both your voyages to come here on Latopia After Dark and discuss them with us. There, this conversation could go on into the wee hours. I'm very glad you came to do battle, sir. Where can we find you on the web, and uh, how do people get a hold of your books, leave you messages, this type of thing? Oh well, you know, well, Facebook actually is the, is the best way for me to be absolutely honest. There's a there's an author page there. I respond to messages there uh, very easily. You can uh, you can arrange for a signed copy of a book that way, or you can obviously the Amazon route or any hopefully any decent bookshop near you or the or an ebook there's plenty of them around there well, I hope we can have you on again and talk about South Africa as hopefully is not descending into its own form of chaos as it walks the razor's edge of the 21st century my name is Ian Wynn a techno pagan octopus messiah joined by super agent Peter Cox and bringing up the medical side of things and the literary Dr. Allison Gardner good night everyone good night. thanks for having me good night good night, good night.